Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got a great show today. I'm so excited to have Jay Warner Wallace back on. He is uh, nice enough to come on and chat about his new book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. The book doesn't come out until September 21st. I think it's already the number one new release in Christian church history, so that's exciting. And it's just like Jim, because nobody does what Jim does, and that's why it's so interesting. And I read what I could read on Amazon. I read the first chapter, and I was riveted, as you will be. So glad to be having uh, Jim back on the show. As you know, he is a cold case homicide detective. He's a popular national speaker and best-selling author. And he is a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and he's also an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola. Jim, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for, you know, this is my favorite time every month, so I'm glad I'm to be I'm so glad you. you say that. That really makes me feel good. I appreciate that. Well, listen, I, you're having me on to talk about a, my book. I feel like I should be, what, what do you want to talk about? We're not going to talk about this. <laughs> I, I actually want to talk about your book. I read I read what I could on Amazon, and I was riveted. It's so good. And you know, well, I'm, a, I'm trying to figure out why we didn't send you a copy of this silly thing. That's uh, okay. We've we got to get that done. Yeah, that's okay. Sure. Um and I, nobody does what you do, Jim. This is why your approach is so novel and so interesting. And, you know, I love crime stories. And the fact that you're talking about Steve and Tammy right in the opening part of the book and you start weaving that through it, it's like, I need more. Well, you know what's funny about that? A lot of that was I knew that we were going to take an approach with this book, which is kind of the opposite approach I took to my first book, Cold Case Christianity. In that book, we were looking at, you know, how do we know that the New Testament documents are reliable? How do we test eyewitnesses and all that, which is good. I mean, you get to do that. But I, I wanted to take a view here because at first, you know, I wasn't willing to read the New Testament. Um, you would have had to make the case for me without the New Testament, because I just felt like everyone's got holy book, you know, some holy book they want you to read. <laughs> and I'm just not interested in your holy book that right. so much. But, but you know, this, this pastor described Jesus as super smart and the smartest man who ever lived. And I thought, well, you know, I, look, I, I'm, I'm okay with fortune cookie Jesus. I, I'm more than willing to buy a Bible to see what the red letters say. So, but, but that's all I was willing to do. But, but it turns out you could make a case for Jesus without referencing the New Testament at all. You can make a case for his historicity. You can make a case for his deity without ever referencing the New Testament. And that's what we're doing in this book. And the reason why I'm taking that approach is because that's really, I mean, I think about halfway through writing and I realized, you know, this this is really more of a book. It's not so much a book about is Jesus Jesus. It's really a book about why does Jesus still matter? Like, why, why would you care about Jesus? Well, it turns out that Almost everything that I, as an atheist, loved the most, you know, that I was, you know, I was an architect before I was a police officer, and so I, you know, I was in the arts, and so it would have been uh, literature, the visual arts, music, education, science. I think most atheists are in love with those elements of culture, but it turns out 
that all those elements of culture are entirely dependent upon Jesus and his followers. I mean, if you love music, the kind of music you love today, well, you can probably thank Jesus and his followers for it because so much of the instruments that are available to us, so much of what we know about harmonies and major scales and minor scales and being able to write this music in a musical notation, this is all innovative stuff that came from Christ's followers. And they were initiated by a worldview that elevated music the way that the Jewish worldview elevated music as a form of worship. And let's face it, even if you're not a, somebody who believes in God, if you're singing songs, you're singing about the stuff that you worship, hmm. the stuff that's of, of utmost importance to you. And that, that really comes out, is born out of our world, our Christian worldview. And Jim, your, your approach with person of interest um, is you've got so many dimensions to it because as a cold case uh, detective, of course, in a previous career, you did that. But also as a person who is uh, um, in the arts, so you've got a number of illustrations in the book, I think. What's the total number of illustrations you did for this book? Well, we did slightly over 400. Okay. Um, so, sure. I mean, I spent about three months illustrating it, and that's because Zondervan, the publisher, was amazing and allowed me to spend almost two years developing the media that I use in like a like a conference presentation yes. you know, on the stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wanted to do that first. I wanted to figure out how would I communicate this to um, an audience visually. Because I've noticed that when I write a book after doing that first – the book reads easier. Like it's 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 uh, it's more uh, it's more powerfully uh, powerful rhetorically, right? Because I've learned how to speak it in front of an audience. So I said, "Can you give me a couple of years to speak this in front of an audience before I have to write a book about it?" And they they were gracious enough to do that. But then I had to take that visual presentation and turn it into a book, and that was, I did, I just underestimated how difficult that was going to be. So so a lot of the stuff I do on the stage, you know, it just doesn't need a lot of words because it's so visually rich. That you go, oh yeah, I see it, I get it. Don't need to say anything else. Um, but now I got to write a book, so we had to figure out how to make the book. It's more like a, it's kind of like a half graphic novel, half half book. It gets even more heavily. I think there's a single page in which, if there's not a list on the page that the, that has some graphic element, some image, some header, something that's graphic, and that's that was really a, a, I wanted to do that from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest, and his book is called Person of Interest. And Jim, in the first chapter, you've got the fuse and the fallout, and the illustration you give is really lovely because it paints a picture in my in my mind. Um, and I referred already to Steve and Tammy. Maybe you could just tell the audience a little bit about that as you thread that through the first chapter. Yeah, I try to like cloak my casework so that it's not so obvious which cases I'm working about. Because I know there are still people who who follow my work who will try to figure out like which cases you're talking about. And so some of these I'm trying to protect either cases that are still not adjudicated, mm-hmm. or you know some of these cold cases take years to adjudicate. And I have a still there. I think I have two that are still open. So I just don't want to give those away. And two, I want to protect victims. But but I've done a bunch of these cases that we call either nobody missings or nobody murders. What they basically are is they are uh, a report of a missing person when actually it's something bad happened to that person. And the person who reports them missing is probably the one who did it. And they'll say, oh, yeah, my wife, she ran off. You know, she had an argument. She left. And she never returned. And meanwhile, he's buried the body someplace. And, and we take it as a missing person's report, not knowing that it's a murder. And then a year goes by, and the family's not even upset about it. They think, oh, yeah, she's the kind of person who might have run off. So we don't really – it goes cold. 
And then I, I pick it up 10 years later, and I'm like, no, this is not a missing person. And she never showed up anywhere. She never ran a credit card. She never had – people don't do that. I mean she's going to show up somewhere. She's probably dead, so now I've got a murder case. Well, what do I have? I have nothing. They didn't even photograph the, the crime scene because they took it as a missing. So now I've got no crime scene, no evidence. They've remodeled the house. How do you prove that kind of a case to a jury? Well, I always tell people, on the day she went missing, it's like a bomb went off. Something bad happened to her, but every bomb has a fuse. And after it explodes, there's shrapnel all over the blast radius. So we're going to prove this case to you guys by showing you the fuse and the fallout. And when you see the fuse and the fallout, you'll know exactly what happened on the day the bomb exploded. So we take this fuse and fallout approach with these nobody missing. So I said, okay, look, if we don't have any evidence from the crime scene because we are unwilling to look at the Gospels, imagine a scenario in which every New Testament was destroyed. There's not a single Gospel anywhere to be found on planet Earth. Could you still make a case from the fuse and fallout of history? Yes, and that's what we do with person of interest. We're just taking and we're comparing every chapter. I slowly unwrap the case with Tammy and Steve, and then I show you how that similar approach could be taken with Jesus. And at the end, I hope we demonstrated that Steve is the killer for Tammy. We certainly did that in court. And then we try to demonstrate that the fuse and fallout will tell you what exactly happened that initiated the common era. And how could someone like Jesus be that cause? What does that demonstrate about who he must really be in order to have this kind of impact on history? So, Jim, I love your approach. And in the book, Person of Interest, um, you do a spectacular job of what I've read, laying this out and keeping us uh, glued to what's next. And it does read, that's a fast page turner. Um, So, and because I haven't had a chance to read the whole book yet, um, I'm going to need to um, have you help me with some of the chapters because uh, sure. I've certainly uh, I've gone through the table of index on the book. And um, when I uh, go through and, and see chapters that uh, are titled like um, Jesus, the copycat savior, I'm fascinated with that, what that means. Well, so how many times have you heard somebody say, and maybe it doesn't, it's not as prevalent in the people that you talk to as it is to the young people that I'm working with, because so much cinema has been done about this. There was a movie several years ago when I was a youth pastor that came out called The God Who Wasn't There, and another movie called Zeitgeist, in which basically the filmmakers are arguing that Jesus never really lived. He's just another dying and rising savior. He's a copycat of all kinds of mythologies that preceded him, that either borrow or have some similarity to Jesus. So um, that that's, my students were bringing these kinds of questions to me as a youth pastor, and so I started to kind of read through. You know, I had a, I luckily had already kind of gone down this path years earlier, and it never really bothered me. And so I, I wanted to see what was bothering my students. So um, I just kind of pulled out my old. I had you know mythology books when I was in college. I don't know if you've ever read mythologies, but there's, I was always fascinated by that kind of stuff. And so I reread the mythologies, and and as I read through them, you know, as a guy, a new investigator of Scripture, I realized that, man, they have a lot of commonalities. You know, if you read through all the – I'm talking about all over the world. If you're in South America or if you're in Persia or if you're in Egypt or if you're in Greece, you'll see that a lot of these mythologies have similarities. And so what I did in the book was I identified 15 of the most common similarities that you see repeated over and over again in ancient mythologies. Now, no ancient myth will have more than maybe six to ten of these, 
But these are the most common, and I'm not going to go through all this today. You have to get the, kind of see the books for this. But my whole point was is that people will look at that and say, well, yeah, I see some of these in Jesus too. So this is where this claim comes from. Oh, Jesus is a copycat savior. But it turns out that that spiritual fuse of antiquity, if you were to list all of the deities in the time in which they appear on the historical line, the time in which they appear on the fuse, you can see that they all burn up to the appearance of Jesus. And these are the common expectations. None of these characteristics are really all that similar. So you might say, oh, well, uh, this deity appears supernaturally. It pops out of the side of a mountain, or it just pops into existence, or it, you know, like our story from Jesus, he is he is born of a virgin. So you get these different uh, supernatural appearances of your deity. Well, why would you be surprised that people, when they think about the existence of God, and if they imagine that there is a God, would imagine that that God would probably appear in a supernatural way? Like, duh, this would be like a common thing I would expect people. Oh, your your deity can work miracles. Well, duh, this is a common <laughs> expectation of people. Right, so I mean, like, mm-hmm. I don't even know why some of these are all that impressive, but they are the common expectations of ancient peoples. They're actually the common expectation of current modern people, also. And it turns out that of all these fifteen attributes, none has more than say ten, until you get to Jesus of Nazareth, and he possesses all fifteen. And the reason why I think that's the case is that God meets our expectations. You see this on Mars Hill, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 Paul says, "Hey, you guys are pretty. You worship a lot of gods. You've got a tomb, a monument here to the unknown God, but I'm here to reveal to you the one true God, who actually ends up meeting their expectations in a way they didn't quite expect, because he's the most robust. So, so again, I think that. It, and why would this be the case? Look, I, I think that if you want the expector. Uh, to 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 respond well, you want to meet the expector's expectations, and and this is what God does when He appears in the form of Jesus. Hmm. Take a little break. Jay Werner Wallace is my guest. His book is Person of Interest: Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. The book is out September twenty first, and two words: pre order. You can do that right now at Amazon dot com. We'll take a little break. Be right back with Jim in a minute. Talking to Jay Warner Wallace today, he's written a book called Person of Interest, uh, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. You can always go to coldcasechristianity.com and see all of Jim's books and his blogs and videos. They're all outstanding. I go there often. I was there today, as a matter of fact. Coldcasechristianity.com. Person of Interest is his new book. comes out uh, September 21st, and you can re, uh, pre-order it right now. And right now it's the already, already the number one and number four book on the pre-order list. That's very impressive. I don't know how you get to be number one and number four at the same time. <laughs> I think one is the audio version or the okay. Kindle version. Okay. Or it pops up in different different categories. 
Yeah, but you know, a lot of this too, Bill, is, is I always put it this way, like nobody writes a book, they want no one to read. <laughs> okay. So true. But the, tr- the truth is, it's hard. Like I don't, I, I want to be as invisible as possible on books because I feel like that's why I'm an author. I want, I discovered something about Jesus in researching this book years ago that I've been trying to talk about ever since I got saved. I talked about it in Cold Case Christianity. I've talked about it here. I mean, I'm not kidding when I tell you that this was like I, I just want people to see it. Right. Like I don't understand sometimes why people aren't um, aren't more impressed with the person of Jesus, given uh, the way the history has unfolded, or given the reliability of Scripture. So uh, the question, and this is why I, I I'm so grateful that you're bringing it up. But I just I'm always uncomfortable. Like you know, let's let's sell another book. It's got to be number one in some category, really. I mean, what we're really trying to do is just make sure that people understand how powerful um, the the evidence is for Jesus. Yeah, deepen their walk with the Lord. Be absolutely more convinced than ever before of who He is. Yep. Yep. Um, that's you know, I learned that the first time I saw you uh, uh, teach and present. I was taking notes to the point where my hand was cramping, and you said to everybody, you don't have to take notes. All this is available on my website. It's all free. All these notes, all these illustrations, they're all free. Just just sit and relax and listen, and then you can go download all this for free. So I know where your heart is, and I feel like I learned that without you knowing I was a radio host. So that was good. Um, so now I know what your heart is, and I know you want to have this story out so people can deepen their walk with the Lord. And it also means that they'll buy your book, which is helpful as well as an author, but um, you know the point I'm trying to make. Well, and I can tell you this, too. I think people always say, oh, yes. Yeah, look, if you're an author of Christian apologetics books, right. okay. You're in a small niche. You're in a small niche, okay? So so you, you better not be thinking, you know, you're, there's lots of other ways. If you, Even as a Christian author, you could have a bigger audience, right? Um, it, you spend a lot of time just trying to convince people that it's, it's worth knowing that this is true evidentially. And, and, Bill, you know that's true. Look, we have young people who... Can you imagine? I'm always struck by it. We're in a culture right now that is so unique. I'm 60, if, and I was not a Christian until I was 35, so I can't really speak before my, at the age of 30. But even at the age of 35, um, for the most part, culture would have agreed largely with the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. I don't think that's the case anymore. I agree. I think that, that as a matter of fact, I think they are offended if they or they don't know what Jesus taught about sexuality, about marriage, about identity, about the sanctity of life, these are things that either they are unaware of or they have twisted it somehow so that he says something different than he actually says. Because I think if people knew what Jesus teaches in those areas, they they would not like Jesus anymore. I mean, if you might think, well, I, I kind of like Jesus. Well, do you even know what he taught on this issue? Because maybe if you knew, you wouldn't like him so much, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I think that that's the, 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 the trick now is, is how to if, – if you don't think this is true for evidential reasons, you're probably not going to think it's true because you, it feels good. Because if you, if you adopt these views, you'll be the least, person, least, least um, popular person you know on your social media. You'll be the least uh, you know, popular person you know at school, the least popular person you know at work. If you hold these views, you, if you don't hold them because you know with certainty that they are evidentially true – I think it's going to be important going forward. And Jim, would you say people are not engaging like they once did? They we write each other off faster than ever before. Oh uh, yeah, I mean this is this is not social media. <laughs> this is 
This is, you know, like entrenched media. This yeah. is like, hey, let me. I've got a position. I've I've dug this hole so deep, and this groove is so deep that I will never come out of it. And and we have divided from each other over this, and we have canceled each other over this. We are the least forgiving, uh, and it's so interesting. We're in. We are willing to forgive some, but not others, right? Mm-hmm. So if I found that you held a view that it was uh, just a standard, uh, even cultural view 20 years ago, and you voiced it on social media, good luck now, right? <laughs> So I think a lot of this is us trying to figure out, you know, why are we in? Why do we why do we still hold to this? Do we we probably hold to it because we we think it's true. But why do we think it's true? You know, I've talked that story years ago, and I've, I've, I've talked to you about it too. That the idea of you know wearing your bulletproof vest and trusting it to do its job. Well, I guarantee you, uh, if you didn't think that bulletproof vest would stop bullets, there's no way you'd calmly stand in it when you think you really need it. As a matter of fact, you're more than likely to to to, to do something, to flinch, to run, to duck for cover. Um, it's knowing that it's that it's it can stop the bullets, and a lot of times we do that right by shooting bullets at it in the range, so we can see that it actually does what they said it would do. Well, we need to have that kind of confidence about our worldview. So that's why we write these kinds of books, right? Because we're thinking, hey, uh, we want people to have that kind of confidence because it's going to get ugly out here, folks. It's going to get uglier uh, because we happen to hold this view. And so if you don't if you don't know that it's true evidentially, you are probably going to either be quiet um, or or um, re- reject it publicly because you want to be popular. There's going to be lots of, of – this can go south a number of different ways. So so I want us to know with certainty, is this true evidentially? Mm-hmm. And Jim, don't we do that all day long, all the time? I mean, if you need your shoulder operated on, don't you start asking who's a good doctor and you start investigating and getting referrals and – finding out what their history is and talking to people, and then you make your decisions based on that kind of information. No, the people are so um, investigative about so many other aspects of their life until it comes to uh, worldview issues. So even if if I'm not a believer, um, I might investigate thoroughly before I make my next car purchase, but I won't investigate deeply the consequences of the worldview I hold. Right. Right? And that's why I thought... I was about halfway through writing this next book when it dawned on me that I'm not writing a book that proves the case for Jesus, at least not, 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 that's not all it does. I, I'm writing about why does this guy still matter? Why does this, this, this little prophet from, or this little wise sage from the small insignificant part of the Roman Empire who was basically born in the middle of nowhere, some small little town, and raised in another dumpy little small town that nobody cared about, and never traveled more than a couple hundred miles, and never had any ad, uh, advantage of – his family didn't have any money. Uh, they accused his mom of, 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 of conceiving him out of wedlock. They, they, they basically – the religious people rejected him. People who were in power wanted to get rid of him. His own followers denied him and betrayed Trade him. Uh, he never uh, had any stature to speak of. He never ruled a nation. He never led an army. He never wrote a sonnet or a, a concert or a book or a poem. Anything that would make you famous. He certainly wasn't living in this century where you've got you know social media. He has no Twitter platform, right? This is a guy who, by all means. Even when they falsely accused him, brutally executed him, he had to borrow a grave. Jim, I'm realizing I'm up against a break here. Let me take a short break. When we come back, lots more with Jay Warner Wallace and his new book. 
Spend the hour with Jay Warner Wallace. He's written a new book called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Jim, I got so carried away in our last segment, I completely lost track of time. I was up against a break. I didn't even see it coming. That does not happen to me very often. Maybe that's the first time it's ever happened. Well, I mean, I, I guess I should credit myself or I would be in such a great distractor. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of questions came in over the break. And uh, yeah. uh, one is, who is your intended audience? Skeptics, non-Christians, Christians? Well, this is always the case, right, with uh, apologetics books, right? When you write a book that, and I don't really consider this to be an apologetics book so much as it's just a Jesus book. So I think this is the kind of book that um, when you read it as a Christian, I guarantee you that you're going to go, oh, wow, I never thought of that before. I never saw that before. I never thought of looking at it that way before. That's what we're trying to do with creative, any kind of creative endeavor, right? Like I, I'm trying to write something that if I thought it was already out there, I wouldn't bother writing it. So I know there are great books about how Jesus has impacted history. I looked at a bunch of them before. I I, I quote a bunch of them in my book. But that's not what we're really doing here. We're going to do two things. We're going to show you the unparalleled impact that Jesus has had that most of our kids, most of us, have either forgotten or we never learned it in school. That's number one. Number two, we're going to show you how you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from every aspect of his impact on culture. Let me give you an example of this. Um, you know, I don't know if you realize, but it, all modern universities were birthed out of three universities that began as Christian projects, Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. Those came out of the cathedral and monasteries. Modern university education came from Christians who planted those schools. Yes, so there were other groups that had upper education, of course, but the kind of university that you and I are thinking of today that is a Christian creation, the kind of university that has a, a faculty that services a body of students and awards diplomas for completing and graduating with a certain amount of proficiency. That is a Christian uh, invention. And as a matter of fact, the top 15 universities in the world today – now, I looked at the top 10, but it turns out, if depending on the list you get, there's 15 there. The top 15 universities are all founded by Christians. And that includes every kind of university planted, and it exists all over the globe. Look at any of the rating systems. You'll find those top 15. Those are Christian universities. And if you were to go and visit those campuses today, you would find that when they were first uh, founded, that their charters mentioned the cause of Christ and that their buildings they used originally to teach students are decorated with either images of Jesus or Bible verses. And if you were just to write down everything that you saw when visiting those 15 campuses, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the 15 top universities in the world from their physical buildings and their founding charters. Now, that's pretty amazing if you think about it. In order to destroy the story of Jesus, you'd have to do more than destroy the New Testament. You'd have to destroy those 15 campuses. And by the way, I think the like 75 of the top 100 are all Christian universities. You have to destroy a lot more than just those 15. But my point is that you take it for granted that we are in debt. If you think education is a high value, you can thank a Christian. If you think that kindergarten was good for you, 
That's an invention of a Christian. If you think that grades where you ascend from one grade to the next after accomplishing certain goals is important, you can thank a Christian. It turns out Christians are involved not only in the establishment of universities, but they're also integrally involved in the history of lower education for kids. So it turns out that it is because Christians were people of the book. And when Jesus said, he didn't say go out and, and evangelize. He said go out and make disciples. That requires you to teach something to them. So you basically initiated a teaching culture in which you were going to gather students to yourself to teach them something from what? From the book. And a lot of these folks didn't read. So you're probably going to teach them how to read so they can read these scriptures do you see what's happening here? We oh, initiated a worldview that caused education to launch. That's fantastic. Um, one other comment that came in is a you're talking about your former education in the arts, specifically drawing. And as an artist, whether as a musician, painter, author, basically anyone who uses their talents and creativity to produce something, aren't they tapping into an attribute of God, the original creator? Yes, they are. And, and I think that's important. But but I could also argue that they're tapping into whatever the God is or whatever theistic worldview you hold. So I'm trying to turn a corner and say, well, it's not just that God, if there is a God, God would be the creator of us, and therefore we would expect to have some of his attributes, and God is creative. Therefore, we would not be surprised to find that we have creative impulses. That's all true. But what's interesting is that you can go through the history of, say, for example, um, the arts, the visual arts. And I wouldn't. I researched this, right? So I mean, I, I love this stuff because I'm. A, that's my whole background was in Christian history, uh, you know, art history rather, and in the arts. And if you were to look at just the art that was produced by Christians in the earliest of ages, you can completely reconstruct every gospel episode. By, so I started with Mark because it's the shortest one. I don't want to spend too much time on this because this took forever anyway. And I just said, okay, what, what is the art that's available from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, all the way to the 10th century, That we and most of it's all before the 5th century. What is the art that's available in which artists and believers were painting the episodes of Scripture? Well, it turns out there's so much art out there that you'd have to destroy more than the Scriptures to get rid of every episode of the, of the Gospels. You'd have to destroy all of the buildings and places where this art was being created. And it turns out that every master, if you look at the different genres of art over history, from, say, the most ancient art to popism to Dadaism to Impressionism to expression, whatever you want to look at, just Google the top three masters in every historic genre of art. Then look at their catalog. Guess what you're going to find? An image of Jesus. In the entire history of art, every genre, the top three artists, Google them, you'll find in their catalog that they were inspired or infuriated or challenged or they didn't, weren't necessarily believers, but they ended up painting Jesus anyway. That cannot be said of any other deity, of any other historical figure, of any other person in the history of persons, yet it can be said about Jesus. Now that's interesting to me. That's the kind of impact he has had on the collective artistic imagination of humans. And by the way, I even have in the book illustrations, I've illustrated all this, but you'll see the A to Z. This is not just a Western phenomenon. He has been painted in pretty much every country under the sun. Somebody has drawn or painted or sculpted or etched the figure of Jesus. 
and he adapts. So, for example, if you were to look at images of Buddha, regardless of culture or location on the planet, they are very similar. Buddha is almost always predicted as Buddha, depicted as Buddha. And you couldn't even tell if this is Buddha from South America or this is Buddha from from, uh, Southeast Asia. You You couldn't tell. But when it comes to the pictures of Jesus... They always are contextualized, so they'll look at very different, for example, in Africa than they will in uh, South America or in Asia. People typically paint Jesus in their own ethnic nationality because he's adaptable that way. He came for all of us. And so what's interesting about Jesus is he, he inspires creativity because people adapt the story. You don't have to become a 5th century Muslim, for example, or a 6th century Muslim, I should say, uh, in order to be a true Muslim, right? Well, they have to be a, a first century Christian in order to be a true Christian. He adapts to whatever culture you're in. So you, 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 you see him in every historic genre, painted very differently, sculpted very differently. People adapt Jesus to their own environment because he came for all of us. This is so interesting, Jim. I appreciate the work you've done on this. I mean, your point's so well taken. We are uh, We are much richer knowing all of this uh, about our Lord and Savior. Well, it's, 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 his impact is so universal. And that's why I say when I started talking before the break, how do you explain that from who he was? Look, if he's just the guy who's a sage, he should not have had this impact. Look at everybody else who existed in the first century at the beginning of the Common Era. None of those people impacted. None of them co- collectively, they could not have changed our calendars. Yet this dude, this nobody changes our calendar. Why? Now, if he happens to be the God of the universe that created all of us, Mm -hmm. then you would expect him to have that kind of impact on history. And that's why I think there's an an aspect of this that actually argues for the deity of Christ. Mm -hmm. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. His His book is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. This book is out September 21st. You can pre-order it right now at Amazon.com. Jim, in in the book you talk about in the fullness of time, Jesus arrives. Would you uh, talk about that chapter? Yeah, that that to me, uh, and I remember doing this with Susie years ago, and I, and I had a, a, just a couple of elements of these fuses that I, I showed Susie, and we were like blown away with it. That Now, I've done much more research on this for this book to kind of to be able to cite the authorities here, but what I looked at was three aspects of, of history that lead up to Jesus. Look, when you have a, a suspect case, and you think, um, well, how do I... How do I demonstrate that this is the guy who did this? A lot of what I do is I show that there were certain conditions that had to be met before this kind of murder could take place, and there were certain deadlines that were in place that caused him to have to act before a certain point in time. And that produces what I call a red zone. When all the conditions have been met, yet I'm still ahead of the deadline, now I've got this window of opportunity in which I need to commit the crime because I've got everything I need, but I've got to act before this deadline, okay? And each um, red zone is going to be dependent on the kind of suspect you have. And when you find a suspect whose red zone just happens to be right at the time of the murder, you probably have the right suspect. So it turns out the same thing can happen with Jesus. I looked at all of the preconditions that were needed to be met before Jesus comes. And what I mean by that is that, look, if if all of these mythologies, for example, if all of them, you wanted all of these people groups to still be actively worshiping the most number of gods reflecting their expectations so that when you arrive as God, you meet the expectations of the largest number of people groups who are worshiping what they think is God. Well, then there's a certain red zone in history in which all of these mythologies are being worshipped at the most uh, uh, by the most number of people. 
And so that presents a large red zone that you could appear any time in there and you would meet their expectations. Then you overlap on that what was happening in the in the Roman Empire. Like when would all the roads be in place, the postal service be in place, we'd have the language, we'd have the alphabet, we'd have the writing systems so that when the message does arrive, it can travel. Right? If you don't have the roads to travel, Paul can't walk on those roads to travel with the message of Jesus. And it turns out that that red zone overlapped on the mythology red zone. Well, now everything's in place and ready to go in a shorter red zone. Then the last thing I overlap is the prophecies of the Old Testament, saying that the Messiah is going to come between the the, the command to reconstruct Jerusalem in Daniel 7, uh, or not in the book of Daniel, it's a, a number of chapters, all the way to the destruction of the temple, which is around 70 AD. Well, now it turns out if you overlap all three of those red zones, the red zone runs from about 29 BC, the beginning of the Pax Romana, to about 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. About a hundred years. And where does history break? It breaks right there in the middle. And who is standing in the middle of that, smack dab in the middle, 30 years in and 30 years from the end, is Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. So that he fits the red zone. And I think when you, now look, I can say all this on the radio, but until you see it illustrated, and once you see it, I think you'll go, wow. And I don't think anyone's ever done that before. And that's just red zoning we do for criminal cases. I've just imported it. And I was showing this. I'm, I'm consulting on a case that's in Los Angeles. It's in closing arguments right now. And I was consulting with the DAs on this, showing them how to make this in front of a jury and showing them the red zone. And these guys all know me. And they're, they're listening. I'm showing my red zone about Tammy Hayes, right, the, the character in the book. Yeah. And they're all saying, oh, I know that's this case. That's that case because I always like mix and match cases to produce one big case for the book, right? And these guys all knew my cases, but um, but that's really what we do in criminal trials all the time. Mm-hmm. Are you working with the, the DA in Los Angeles, the guy you did all that work with? Yes, I am. He's yeah. got a case right now, and I'm just kind of helping them kind of um, visualize the closing. Yeah. So. All right, let me take one more break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. His book is A Person of Interest. Um, we'll be right back with lots more. Wallace. We're talking about his new book called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. book comes out September 21st. Be first on your block to get it. You can go to Amazon.com and pre-order it right now, well, after the show. So, uh, Jim, if I may quote my producer, uh, Rosie, she said during the break, and I quote, I totally can't wait for the book. Well, I, I'm encouraged that, that she's, she thinks so. You, you, you always kind of figure um, – I worry sometimes about whether or not we're doing an effective job of communicating what's true about Jesus to culture. So so I'm always encouraged if someone says, oh, good, this is something that's worth it, – it, 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 sometimes it's hard to motivate young people especially. Like, why should I care about this Jesus of Nazareth? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that gets me. Like, why should I care, right? And it's because everything that matters to you is dependent on Jesus and his followers. Yeah, I guarantee you, one of those things you care about. If you, if, it's, if you're a musician, 
well, you know what? Do you know anything about the history of music and how we got here and why it is you sing in major and minor scales and, and, and actually have musical notation and, and why we have the instruments we play and, and we um, the history that led up to every form of music you have today? Do you have any idea how much an impact that Jesus had on that? Um, it's really hard to to imagine music today. And I'm not just talking about Western music. I'm talking about music in general, because the history of music is, is just as easily impacted as the history of art. You know, I actually did this, Bill. I went back and I looked at all of the top 100 pop stars um, globally, and every in every every genre, not just pop. Uh, like the top, and there's a bunch of these lists out there. Billboard's got a list. Uh, Rolling Stone's got a list. IMDb's got a list. So these are the big, the big artists globally that sell the most albums, and and it ends up being about 150 uh, over the last hundred years that people would say, and they're in every genre, every genre. And so I took those 150 artists and I just started searching their catalogs, and all but two have sung a song about Jesus of Nazareth. And a lot of them are really derogatory. I think Frank Zappa is my favorite. He's got a song I think I think it's called uh, "Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk." <laughs> That's the name of the song, and and it's not like a it's a pejorative kind of. But again, it's that he's infuriated, inspired in some ways, triggered people to write about him, mm-hmm. to sing about him. Do you realize you could reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the first 300 years of hymns sung by the church? I've collected those. I've got a list of those in the book. Those hymns, if you go back and read them, you can completely reconstruct the story of Jesus from the Gospels and the rich theology that was born out of that. Um, so, I mean, there's just so you'd have to destroy so much more than the Gospels. The history of music, the history of education, the history of literature, the history of visual arts, the history of science. Do you realize the most robust uh, descriptions of Jesus come from the leading scientists in the history of science? As a matter of fact, the science fathers, the fathers of the major scientific disciplines, they are vastly out, I mean, disproportionately Christian. And and if you listen, if you listen to what they say about Jesus, you get the most robust reconstruction of the Jesus story, not from the church fathers. You get them from the science fathers, and I'm talking about science fathers all the way from the beginning, uh, all the way to the you know the founders of quantum mechanics and and computer sciences and engineering and things that you think, well, this is we're talking about up to the the, the, the Nobel uh, Science Prize has uh, been won by more Christians than any other group. Uh, we have dominated the sciences, and even today, we have to make a choice. We can continue to dominate the sciences, or we can just decide that, you know, for whatever reason, we don't trust the sciences, and we're not going to be involved anymore. But that would be a mistake, I think, because our the sciences as you know them today, where we are scientifically today, is deeply indebted to Jesus and his followers. So, Jim, uh, chapter 10, Jesus, the one and only. I'd love for you to talk about that. Well, I mean, let's face it, it's not just all those areas I talked about that I respected as, a, as an atheist. There's one area I didn't talk about, which is um, theistic worldviews, world religions. It turns out that the world religions that are active today all make room for Jesus in one way or another. There's a place for Jesus in Hinduism. He is seen as one of the wise, enlightened teachers in Buddhism. There's a place for Jesus in Islam, in Ahmadiyya uh, 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 Islam. There's a place in New Age uh, uh, spirituality for Jesus. People accept Jesus as a wise teacher in these systems. Um, even those worldviews that existed before Jesus. Remember, Hinduism and Buddhism and, and Zoroaster, these are all things that existed before Jesus, yet were impacted by Jesus. They started to modify some of their teaching. They started to modify 
some of their practices once Jesus came on the scene. And I just did a whole chapter in which I talk about how much other non-Christian theistic worldviews have either mentioned, merged, or modified their belief systems in order to incorporate Jesus. All the while, Jesus says, there's no room for you guys over here. <laughs> and so he is the one and only. Uh, and if you just if you didn't have Christianity on the planet, you would know something about Jesus. And I show I show in the book how much of the Jesus story you can reconstruct from non-Christian systems, theological systems, and a lot of the Jesus story can be reconstructed from other religions. And so, if you aren't a Christian in a world in the world today, there's a good chance that some leader or some part of your scripture teaches something about Jesus, and that's really remarkable given that Jesus does not reciprocate. Um, and so in the end, it may just be that it's because he, he's the one, you know, if you're going to start, if you're interested as a spiritual seeker, you should start with Jesus because it turns out he's pretty much everywhere else anyway. So might as well start with him. So Jim, if you read person of interest, you're going to realize quickly the enormous footprint that we might not have ever paid attention to. Yeah. I think this is the sad reality of it is that, um, most of us, myself included, uh, before I started doing this work many years ago. Um, just was not aware. I, I wasn't taught this growing up. I mean, I was in public schools, so maybe that's why. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had no idea about any of this uh, growing up, that any of this was true. I'll bet most Christians um, don't know anything of our own history, uh, any reason why this is, in fact, um, the most important person of interest who ever lived. So what I'm trying to do basically is two things, right? Let's let's at least get some sense of the impact that Jesus has had. Let's make it as visual as possible. Uh, so it's more like a graphic novel than it is like a history book. It reads really fast, um, and it is also going to unwrap a murder mystery chapter by chapter as you unwrap the mystery of Jesus. Yeah, and do we find out the results of the uh, the cold case murder with Tammy and Steve? Yes, but you won't be surprised, I think, Bill, to find no, out. No, I don't that, think uh, I will be, but um, yes. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, I'm not going to usually probably put in a case that I, I lost miserably. Well, I, I would imagine you're not, but <laughs> right. uh, you know, two weeks after Tammy disappears, uh, Steve's new girlfriend moves into the house. Yeah, that kind of stuff is no fallout, right? Like you yeah, start destroying, you start destroying your wife's property before you even know if she's going to come back. That's probably a tip-off. Yeah, yeah. So um, talk about in the remaining time. We got a couple of minutes left, Jim. Just the yeah. Jesus, the who is the person of interest, but you might say he's the unlikeliest of suspects. Yeah, he really is. So here's what I would say. Jesus still matters, and he still matters because everything that you care about in the visual arts uh, is dependent on Jesus and the history of arts. That more, No one has been written about in literature more than Jesus of Nazareth. Even the people who are not writing about Jesus, they're writing fiction. There's an entire genre called Christ figures in which the person of Jesus and his attributes are incorporated into Marvel superheroes. And the list is amazing. If you read through that list, you're going to go, yeah, I see. I get it. I get it. Yeah. We continue to adapt Jesus even into fiction. More screenplays have been written about Jesus throughout the entire, even some of the first films ever made were about the Jesus story. Um, that one movie, the Jesus film, has been seen by, it still holds the record for most languages translated and most viewings. No one has seen any film more than they have seen the Jesus film. Jesus has an impact on literature, on art, on music, on education, and on science. And he matters not because he's had this impact. Those things matter because of Jesus. 
It's the opposite, right? It's that they demonstrate that there's something about Jesus that is supernaturally important, supernaturally impactful, that a man of this stature should not have been the, uh, the calendar changer, the, the figure, the one cause that, that, that inaugurated the common era. That should not have been Jesus of Nazareth. But that unlikely candidate, and I've made a list of all the other first century figures, all the other world leaders, all the other deities or spiritual leaders, even all the other people who claim to be the Jewish Messiah. I'm not even sure you're aware of this, but there's a bunch of those. None of them had this kind of impact, the kind of impact that Jesus had. And that's because he is the person of interest. He is humanity's person of interest. And that's why he ought to be of interest to us. He ought to be of interest to young people. He ought to be of interest to all of us who think we value these other things that are entirely derivative. They are dependent. They stand on the shoulders of Jesus and his followers. It's time for us to realize that. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. When you said you you have 400 illustrations, how many of those got into the book? Well, all of them got, and they were very oh. gracious. They let oh, me wow. do the entire interior layout, wow. and I just presented the layout to them, and they accepted it. So you get this little tiny, tiny credit on the on the publishing page, basically. You know, that's about all you get out of that. But it took me about three months to illustrate it. Yeah. Um, but it was just a, a labor of love. Well, I'm very excited to to read it and see the illustrations. So um, I'm looking forward to uh, getting it myself. September 21st. Jim, thanks so much for doing the show. Always a pleasure. I appreciate you. Thanks so much, Bill. Appreciate yeah, you it. Bet. Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. His book is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, hour two is just ahead. We're going to continue our Wednesday at 5 p.m. series. Of course, we're in the Old Testament uh, characters now, and our special guest is uh, Daryl B. Harrison. So Dr. Peter Capster and I will be hosting that in just a couple minutes. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.